This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter, Your Life is Too Short and Too Precious to Waste, written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford, available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Well, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. One of the most often asked questions that I get is someone saying, our church lived through the 2016 presidential election, divided. Our church lived through the 2020 presidential election, divided. Our church lived through Black Lives Matter protests, divided. Our church lived through COVID, divided. How are we going to get through 2024? And that's one of the questions that we're going to be asking today with someone I really respect on this topic. The book is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, which I read only because a friend of mine had recommended it. And I thought, you know, you basically know what books about conflict are going to be. I was less than one chapter in when I realized, oh, wait. This is different, and it is completely different, and I have given out more copies over the past uh, couple years than I can count right now. So I'm really glad to have Amanda Ripley with us on the show this week. She is a New York Times bestselling author, Washington Post contributing columnist. She's an investigative journalist, the co-founder of Good Conflict, LLC, and she's the author not only of High Conflict, but... The Smartest Kids in the World, and The Unthinkable. She's been writing for quite a while previously about human behavior for Time Magazine in Washington and New York and Paris. Amanda Ripley, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me and for the kind words. I've learned so much from your show and from your writing and from your work. So I'm just, I'm real excited to be here with you. Well, thank you. How would you advise someone to answer the question that I said at the very beginning, when someone is saying, how can we live through this kind of divisive time all over again? Yeah. It's funny that you say that because it makes me think, believe it or not, about the Hatfields and the McCoys. You've heard of them, right? (laughs) Like the quintessential American blood feud. 
Oh, yeah. So this was in the 1870s. Very few people actually know anything about it, but we've all heard of it, right? Which is interesting because there aren't mm-hmm. that many cultural touchstones that we can all, <laughs> you know, relate to on yeah. some visceral level anymore. But that is one. It was a war that went on between those two families on the Kentucky-West Virginia border for 12 years. We know that over a dozen people were killed, maybe many more. We don't know for sure. But it was a contagion, just a really ugly conflict. And what made me think of it is the way it ended was that Cap Hatfield, who was one of the elders on the Hatfield side, wrote a letter to his local newspaper in West Virginia declaring that he had had enough. And he said, the war spirit in me is abated. And he said, I suspect we are Mm. all of us tired of the names Hatfield and McCoy. And so the whole letter was just, just laced through with exhaustion, you know? And I hear that in the question Mm. that you asked and the question you're getting asked, which is how can we keep doing this? Now, the good side about that is that that is what we have to get to for things to change, is that kind of deep, fatigue and a desperation for something else. And I think that's how most Americans feel, but it will require leaders to step up and create an alternative way of being in conflict. Well, I think you would have, say, a a local pastor or small group leader or Sunday school teacher who would say, but I can't change the entire world. And that's where all of this is coming from. We're, we're living and moving in this uh, world. I want to ask you about what somebody can do as an individual or as a small group of people in a time like this, when it seems like, what, what difference am I going to make here? But before we do that, you make a difference, a, a distinction between conflict and high conflict. So how does somebody know in a family or in a house of worship or somewhere else if they've moved from just good, regular conflict that's not passive-aggressive, sort of we're not going to talk about certain things, into high conflict? Yeah, it turns out there's a bright line in the research, which is kind of reassuring, right? (laughs) So, And I think once Mm. you see it, it's hard to unsee it. I do think you can move in and out. It is a spectrum, right? But some of the characteristics, ways that you know you're probably in high conflict are when you feel actual pleasure at the other side or other person's misfortune and tragedy. Right. That would be one Mm -hmm. sure sign. Another would be when the other side or other person does something that you actually agree with, but you cannot acknowledge it. When you lose sleep over the conflict, when you have imaginary, repetitive, almost boring arguments with the other side in your own head. And in the research, we know from the research on emotion and conflict that anger isn't really the problem. It's contempt, right? That's the problem. It's disgust. Mm -hmm. Those are much harder to work with because right underneath them is the feeling that there is nothing that can be done, that the other side is irredeemable and the only option is total annihilation. And so that's where we get into violence and really difficult conflict. 
I mean, before we start talking about groups of people, we're, we're just talking about that imaginary back and forth that you were talking about with an individual. If somebody is listening to this and he or she says, oh, wait, I, I think I'm doing that. I, I think that when, when I hear something bad has happened to this group or this person, I do get a little jolt of excitement about it. What can that person start to do about it if, if there's no way to actually resolve the conflict yeah, itself? Yeah, this is what's so hard, right? And I'm glad you asked it that way because it circles back to this question of what can anyone do, any individual, right, who feels so powerless mm-hmm. right now? And by the way, that is a common theme, whether I talk to members of Congress, Fox News personalities, or my neighbor, we all feel powerless, which is interesting. Even the people who are yeah. objectively quite powerful, <laughs> which is another sign of high conflict. Yeah, right. But, so it definitely starts with trying to get your own head in good conflict instead of high conflict. So every day I do a bunch of things to try to stay in good conflict, not only in our political conflict, but in my own personal conflicts. So try to, try to start in my own head because that's the one thing I can influence, <laughs> right? And then mm-hmm. it does change my behavior for towards others. So one thing that I try to do a lot of is to widen my lens on the conflict, right? To think about mm. where are the pieces that aren't fitting? To try to I will even print out, you know, headlines or articles that don't fit in the narrative of the conflict when something happens that I didn't expect, right? With Donald Trump particularly, This is different than, I mean, I don't know family text threads that split apart over Mitt Romney Mm -hmm. versus Barack Obama (laughs) or John Kerry versus George W. Bush. So are you basically asking me, how do we solve a problem like Maria, but about Donald Trump? Is that basically (laughs) what you're asking me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I guess what I'm asking you is how, how would you categorize this as Mm -hmm. different. I think there are some times where there are things Mm. that one will say, you know what, I don't agree with this, but on balance, the relationship is more important, so I'm not going to bring that up. Yes. And and, uh, there are a lot of people who are saying, well, I can't do that. I mean, what do I do when... My black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ have left my church and everybody's in MAGA hats and saying, if you're not, you're not really a Christian or the reverse. I mean, in some way, how do you do that without completely giving up what you believe? That's not a good option, right? So I was struggling with those same questions after Trump's election and really felt like to keep doing the kind of journalism I was doing just didn't make any sense. I mean, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer the question with an analogy, right? So if you just mm-hmm. keep doing traditional journalism, but only with a more shrill, righteous tone, you will not have the result you want to have, right? We can see that. You, in this mm-hmm. kind of conflict, high conflict, any intuitive thing you do will make things worse. This is the really diabolical lesson that I keep having to learn and re- relearn. And you keep seeing it, right? 
any intuitive thing you do is the wrong thing. It will backfire. It will make the other side stronger. Truly, you start to harm the thing you went into the fight to protect. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your country. Maybe it's your church. Hmm. But listening to your first instinct is a very bad idea in high conflict because it doesn't operate high conflict according to normal rules of physics. (laughs) Hmm. So I think this is what you're kind of getting at, is you can't ignore it, you can't sidestep it, you can't put it in a corner, right? But also you can't just do what feels right. Or you can, but then you're in this endless loop that we're in, right? So it feels like we're in a trap. And as the author Mm -hmm. China Mieva once said, a trap is only a trap until you know it's a trap. (laughs) Once you know it's Mm. a trap, you can start finding the contours. So let me give you an example of what I mean. To try to find the contours of high conflict, you know, I, I just did the one thing I know how to do. It's, there's only one thing I know how to do in all my books and all my reporting, which is follow people who have been through the woods and out to the other side and ask them, what did you do? <laughs> like, what do you wish you had known? Mm-hmm. And so I followed a former gang leader in Chicago and a politician in California and a former guerrilla member in Colombia, environmental activists in the UK, all these people who had really lost their minds in high conflict and lost years of their lives to the conflict and eventually ended up mimicking the behavior of their opponents, which is also a sure sign of high conflict, Mm -hmm. but then shifted to something closer to good conflict, right? Where they were much more effective and it was just better for their soul. They didn't give up those values. They didn't give up the fight, Mm -hmm. but they shifted. And the first thing they all did, which is easier said than done, is they distance themselves from the conflict entrepreneurs in their lives. And I have quoted you on conflict entrepreneurs. I'll bet there's not a day that goes by (laughs) that I don't, because it is such a helpful category. What is a conflict entrepreneur? So a conflict entrepreneur is someone or even a company or a platform or an organization that exploits conflict, that inflames conflict for their own ends, who seems to delight in every twist Mm. and turn that a conflict takes. Usually conflict entrepreneurs have some damage that they have not been able or willing to deal with. And they are spreading the pain around and the chaos. And right now, we've created a bunch of institutions, social media, politics, punditry, to reward, Mm -hmm. glorify, and celebrate conflict entrepreneurs. Yeah. So the first rule is to try not to be one, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very tempting. I don't know about for you, but for me... I, there are many tweets I just have erased, you know, or, or I wish mm-hmm. I'd never sent years ago because that's the incentives right now yeah. is to be one. So in the case of the people I followed, Curtis Toller, the former gang leader who now does violence interruption for Chicago Cred, an organization in Chicago, he literally moved across town so people could not find him. So he's literally distancing himself from conflict entrepreneurs. But also he used to be one. Mm -hmm. So he understands that you can shift and not to give up on people. For other people, it's changing who's in your newsfeed. Like, it's not that turning down the volume on conflict entrepreneurs will fix the conflict. 
It's more that it will open up your own vision so that you can see opportunity when it presents itself. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Moore. One of the things that, that I learned in the chaos in the Southern Baptist Convention was that there are often very different psychologies at work. So most people were great to me and supportive of me and they wanted to do the right thing. And But they did not have an incentive structure for conflict at all. Hmm. But there is an incentive structure going the other direction, which means the other direction almost always wins. Mm -hmm. If not wins on the policy, they win in terms of what's on the table and and what can be actually even discussed. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, have you seen that sort of, of thing? And if so, how do we start to help that? Yes, I have definitely seen it. And I feel your pain. And, you know, I read Losing Our Religion, your latest book. And it's just beautifully written. There are times when I Thank laughed you. out loud, which, you know, isn't always the case in a story and a book about, <laughs> about polarization and deep conflict. But the thing that ran through it all is I kept asking myself, how did he do this? It is profoundly, like physically painful to yeah. be ostracized from your group and to stand up to conflict entrepreneurs and to try to resist the magnetism, right, of the conflict. So that's the first thing, is I just want to appreciate how isolating and and physically and spiritually painful it is. Mm. And I also want to ask you, because I kept thinking this the whole time, have you ever read this book, Well-Intentioned Dragons? No, I don't think I have. Okay, it's an old book by Marshall Shelley, but it is a much thinner less eloquent book than yours, but it came out in 1985. And it's reassuring in a strange way because the subtitle is Ministering to Problem People in the Church. And it's stories about how these conflict entrepreneurs seem to have always found 
a strange home <laughs> in the church. And what is it mm -hmm. about churches that now, obviously now it's not just churches, it's school boards, it's libraries, it's supermarkets, yeah. but some of his pieces of advice for dealing with what he calls well-intentioned dragons and what I call conflict entrepreneurs still hold true. And the first thing to note is that they're not all the same, right? There's a spectrum right. of conflict entrepreneurs. Yeah. There are bad faith actors in the world who are not operating for economic profit or power, but they're operating out of their own misplaced suffering, right? Sometimes it's yeah. all of those things. Some of them are aware of what they're doing. Like they are aware cynically that they are lying and some of them are not. Some of them are 80% conflict entrepreneur and 20% mother or father or pastor mm -hmm. or whatever. And you can sometimes speak to that 20% if you can figure out what it is, <laughs> which requires mm -hmm. listening, which is hard. But one of the things that, that Marshall Shelley says in this book is, and this is, I think, the first rule that we could probably both relate to, which is when attacked by a dragon, do not become one, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Which is hard. You cannot fight venom with venom. And this is what I mean about your intuition being unhelpful. So then it only leaves us, right, with counterintuitive actions. That's what we have to do, is just consider doing the opposite. The opposite doesn't mean staying silent, right? Mm -hmm. But it might mean doing something we don't want to do and doing it with great care. Now, that sounds very mysterious, but <laughs> what do you think about that theory? Well, I think that's right. I just think that it is a little abstract. Yeah. So the first step that we do at Good Conflict and what a lot of conflict mediators do in the field is to map the conflict. What you want to do is get it out of your head and get it onto paper. So with journalists, when we train them on this, we're trying to figure out First of all, where am I on that map? Mm -hmm. Where's the newsroom? And also, who have we not talked to? Who could influence this conflict? Who might be better than me to say these things? Or sometimes it is I am the best person to say it, right? If I'm the leader or in your case, right? And there are going to be people you cannot convince. But the piece of it, I think for me, that I've learned to be most careful about is to not humiliate anyone as I'm doing mm -hmm. this. I don't know if this mm -hmm. resonates, but yeah. humiliation is the driving most high conflict we're seeing right now. And yet yeah. I never really thought about it before, <laughs> before I started researching high conflict. And so sometimes that means having some conversations in private as opposed to public, still having the conversation, still holding people accountable but not gratuitously humiliating them. Sometimes mm -hmm. it means turning down the volume on conflict entrepreneurs who describe everything as a humiliation. But, but how, do you, how do you turn down the volume on them when, right. when they're there right. <laughs> in, in the room? Right, right. And it's, it's especially hard when they, they have the biggest microphone, right? I mean, sometimes if you look at the case of Donald Trump, and I'm sorry to keep coming back to this, but it's just fresh on top of mind because I've mm -hmm. been hearing a lot of criticism for the mainstream media 
places like the New York Times for not not amplifying Donald Trump's recent threats. Yeah. And so you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? If the New York Times yeah. amplifies his threats, they're giving him a platform. They're giving him a platform. If they don't, and if they don't, they're covering for him. Right. Yeah. Right. In my experience, when it feels like there are only two choices, I'm usually missing something. Mm -hmm. So there's a third choice, which is to not amplify, but to investigate, to probe, to try to understand the understory of the conflict. In the mm -hmm. case of conflict entrepreneurs like Donald Trump, they're actually extremely predictable. I mean, if, you've, mm -hmm. if you know anything about narcissism, you know what this guy's going to do before he does it. Yeah. But explaining that to people, hey, look, we know that when narcissists are feeling stressed, like they're not getting enough attention, they will get louder and more threatening in their rhetoric. This is what is likely to happen. This is why it happens. Here's what these three psychologists suggest for dealing with narcissists. That is, is helpful, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. As opposed to just saying, can you believe what he said? Here's what he said. He's yeah. dangerous. So I think when it's in the situation like an institution and you cannot turn down the volume on a conflict entrepreneur, you have fewer choices. One thing you can do is try to understand them better so that you can get to that 10 or 20 percent, right? Like what else do mm -hmm. they care about? Mm -hmm. so, so in the Donald Trump example, what should the New York Times or CNN do yeah. when they have the damned if you do, damned if you don't on that. I know it's a really great question. I think there's because a because one of the things that's really is really concerning, and this is not just in terms of Trump, it's in terms of a lot of things. I've noticed how normalized things have become to me. Yes. Much less to uh, kind of the world at large. Things that I will think, you know, if if I heard about this in 2015, I would be in absolute shock. Yeah. For me, it has been very helpful to try to articulate what the goal is. Like, mm -hmm. most journalists have a theory of change, but they never say what it is. So, yeah. the New York Times, okay, let's say I want the New York Times to help us reestablish norms, like you just said, of decency. Yeah. Just basic decency, which we need. We need guardrails. You just can't have a society without them. The New York Times cannot do that right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and right, so yeah. some of this is my own magical thinking can get in the way, which is I think, oh, mm -hmm. if only you'd call him a liar, then things would change. That's yeah. not how this works, right? So what can the New York Times do? The New York Times can do very little when it comes to Donald Trump's behavior and his most ardent supporters. That's just the way it is. Yeah. When you're in high conflict, what matters most is what people in your own group say about you. I wonder what you would think about whether this is the right way to handle something. I often have people who will say, I've got a family member I love, usually a mom or dad, actually. And I really want to connect with my mom and dad. I really don't want to 
end up debating COVID conspiracy theories mm. or whatever the whole time that I'm over there. And I also don't want my kids to kind of hear that. But I, I don't want to disconnect from them. That will make it worse. Mm -hmm. What I've often told people is, why don't you have a conversation and say, look, we don't agree on this. Can we just declare this to be kind of a no-fly zone? And we just don't talk about that. And we talk about these, these other things because you're not going to change me. I'm not going to change you. And our relationship just means too much to me to let that happen. So can we just do that? Is that avoidance? Uh, or in that case, could that be a helpful thing to do? Yeah. I mean, I think that's great advice, especially right now, approaching an election and right after an election. Mm. And also, I mean, we want to dose this stuff. We want to contain it because it's too much yeah. to, to have it all the time, right? I think yeah. one of the things that we know is that if you are going to talk about these divisive things, you need to prepare for it like you are preparing for an Ironman competition, like mm. for real. <laughs> like it's not something yeah. you just kind of wing your way through and just improv. So I think you can have more difficult conversations, but you need to prepare for it. You need to, again, get really clear on the goal. What is my most important goal here? Is it to continue the relationship, to stay connected, which I would suggest should, should be your, your most important goal? Yeah. And if so, sometimes talking about these things can help with that connection, right? Because otherwise there's a wedge between you. But you can't yeah. talk about them the way we've been talking about them. You can't talk about them the way politicians are talking about them. So... You have to talk in advance and say, hey, I, I don't want to talk about this for more than 15 minutes, but I am really curious and I don't want this to get between us. Could we do this differently? Like issue the invitation. And then maybe they say, what do you mean differently? And you say, I want to ask you some questions and really listen to understand. And I'm going to play back for you what I think you're saying and see if I'm getting it right. And then I would love it if you do that for me. And if that feels too corny, right? Then you come up with some other guardrails. But something like that where we take it out of the normal boxing mm -hmm. ring and put it in a new one. And so we have a list of, you know, 20 questions that we've compiled from journalists all over the world who work in really intense conflict. And it's on goodconflict.com. But some of them are really helpful to ask each other if you want to go there or if the other person takes you there, whether you want to or and not. We'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. As yeah. Well. Okay. So just to give you a sense, it gets us out of the talking points and says, what do you think the other group or the other side thinks of you? What do mm -hmm. you wish they understood about you? What would you like to understand about them? And one of my favorite ones is if you woke up tomorrow and this whole problem were solved, you got what you want. How would you know? That's a good question. Yeah, like walk me through yeah. that day. Like your, your alarm goes off, then what? And, mm -hmm. and I've done this with staff on Capitol Hill and other people who are in a lot of conflict. And it's interesting because you see them really thinking because it gets us out of our usual narratives about what's wrong and gets us into what would it look like for things to be different, which is what we really need in high conflict. We need more imagination just to get us out of that rut, right? And get us back to yeah. the personal. Yeah, how, how do you, 
articulate that in a time when it seems to me, usually about politics, but this also, I think, works in terms of all kinds of things. But there's an assumption that people have that one day we're either going to have total victory and exuberant joy <laughs> or we're going to have total defeat and be gone. Now, I, I mean, ultimately, of course, I believe <laughs> I have an eschatology. Right, right. I believe that that's true. But, it, you know, in terms of elections or in terms of even, you know, church elder elections or, or whatever, that's not true. You're going to win sometimes. You're going to lose sometimes. And that actually is a good thing to sort of keep some uh, movement from just metastasizing. How does one communicate that, that, hey, look, when I say we're not always going to win, it doesn't mean that I've joined the other side. Right. I mean, it's interesting because you're actually, I think you're saying that there's actual value in having that tension that we need. Yeah, some of it. Yeah. Right. And I think that's right. Sometimes. And, and I would say the same thing in, a, in the country. Right. I mean, we don't want a country without a conservative party. Right. And we don't want a country without a progressive party. If just to, right. if just because without the progressives, the conservatives stop being conservative and without, you know, the vice versa, it seems to me. Right. It makes us better. It makes us stronger yeah. as a community. It makes us think. We get challenged. We challenge other people. That's what good conflict is, right? That's the kind of conflict yeah. we need more of in a pluralistic society, for sure. We need more of that where questions get asked, curiosity exists, there's flashes of understanding, even if there's never agreement, that's okay. Yeah. So we know that's the kind of conflict we need more of, as opposed to high conflict. And, and one of the challenges of high conflict is that it does feel like we have to win, right? To your point, and this magical mm -hmm. thinking. So it reminds me of William Urey, who's the negotiator who's worked all over the world. He has this great line where he says, you can't win a marriage. Hmm. And, and we are <laughs> married good. to each other, right? I mean, yeah. as Democrats and Republicans, or if uh -huh. we're in the same church or the same synagogue, we, we can't get rid of each other, even if we'd like to. It also reminds me of, I was talking to a former diplomat from South Africa, and he was saying, you know, one of the biggest challenges we had was to convince everyone that the other group wasn't leaving. Mm -hmm. The white people were not going to go back to Europe because there was this fantasy that if we could just get rid of them, we'd be good. I see mm -hmm. that happening with Trump. It's ironic how much I've talked about him, right? Since we've been mm -hmm. saying you shouldn't amplify. But there's a lot of that on the left. If he just were gone, right? Mm -hmm. And you see it happening in high conflict divorces, right? It's the same thing. It feels like there is no other option except annihilation. And the reality is we have children together. Whether mm -hmm. we get divorced or not, <laughs> we, have to, we have to deal with each other. And so coming down to earth and reckoning with that hard truth is something that I think leaders can help us with. Like we cannot live without each other. And now more than ever, as we saw with the pandemic, I mean, we're interrelated. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith, 
and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. How do you know if a conflict or high conflict is actually about something else than what's being argued about? Yeah. I mean, I see this a lot yeah. in, in church exactly. conflict where what they're arguing about is, you know, whether to replace the pews with folding chairs, but really yeah. they're, what they're arguing about is something completely else, completely Absolutely. different. How do you find that out? Yeah, so so I like to call that the understory of conflict, the thing it's really about. So I would say every single high conflict has the thing we talk about endlessly, which is like the iceberg above the waterline, you know, the facts about, you know, who did what, when, the political facts often, or the debate. Mm -hmm. And then underneath the waterline is the understory, which is where most of the conflict resides. And if we never get to that, not only is it just boring, from <laughs> from a basic content point of view, but also we never get anywhere because we're not dealing with the understory. And and the good news is there's like a finite number of possible things that are lurking underneath the waterline. The understory is almost always power and control, closeness and care, respect and recognition. That's that humiliation piece we were talking about. Mm -hmm. or just exhaustion and stress. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes high conflict is about our basic needs not being met, right? So we take it out, mm -hmm. it comes out sideways. And you saw a ton of that in the pandemic where people were taking mm -hmm. out their anxiety and fear and frustration on each other. And, you know, how many times did we have to watch stories about people freaking out on airplanes? And never yeah. did we talk about the understory. You know, it's frustrating because it's like, when people are experiencing extreme anxiety and uncertainty, they do something psychologists call splitting, which you've mm. seen, I think, quite a bit of in your time, which is we need to divide the world into good and evil. Yeah. And then there's great reassurance in that. So let's talk about the fear and uncertainty, and then we won't need to split everything. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How do you know when it's time in a, a church or an institution, a, a political party or, or anything else, how do you know when it's time to say, okay, now is the time when I need to leave? I mean, because you, you can't say, I'm really wanting to work from the inside to make the Ku Klux Klan sensitive to racial justice. I mean, eventually you would say, oh, okay, that's not going to happen. Right, right. <laughs> and instead, all I'm doing is empowering the Ku Klux Klan. That's an extreme example, of course. But, but how do you know when it's time to say, okay, the way we need to deal with this conflict is actually to go separate ways? And how do you know when that's just sort of giving up too soon? Yeah, I'm curious to turn the question around. But before I do that, I mean, I think it reminds me of in the book, I talk about B'nai Jeshurun, a synagogue in New York City that was imploding mm -hmm. in a lot of internal conflict over Israel. And yeah. this has happened to a lot of synagogues, right? And mostly rabbis just don't talk about Israel because mm. they don't want to have high conflict. 
But Rabbi Rowley, who's someone I spent a lot of time with trying to understand conflict better, he was trying to grapple with this question. Should I leave? Because he could have easily gone to another synagogue that was more aligned with his views on Israel. But it had become a high conflict, largely because the media had gotten a hold of it. It was on the front page of the New York Times, this split in the synagogue, and people were really turning on each other in a way that was quite horrifying to him. And so he thought very seriously about leaving. And then he decided that his core values were he didn't want to be in a place where everyone agreed with him. That didn't mean he wouldn't have to leave, right? He might still have to. But he wanted to try every last thing. And there was one thing he hadn't tried in his case, which was to lean into the conflict, as he put it, with help, (laughs) to Mm -hmm. do it counterintuitively. That's not always going to work. Or maybe you've tried that and it didn't work, right? But in his case, they spent a year using resetting the table, which had done mediation in, in the Middle East, retraining how people interact in conflict in the synagogue and trying to cultivate good conflict. And they succeeded. And then when it came time to deal with interfaith marriage, another explosive topic. They managed to use the same tactics and habits and rituals and get through it without imploding. So I think it's, you know, a question of, am I in my own heart able to stay in good conflict? Or is it just not possible? I mean, there are times where it's just not possible or even wise or healthy or safe, right? What do you think? How do you know when it's time? Well, in my case, I chose a group of people who met three criteria. One, that I really trusted them in terms of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Two, that they knew me Hmm. well enough to know. Uh, And three, that they knew the situation. Uh, Actually, four criteria. That they knew the situation enough. So they actually understood the dynamics at work. And and the last one, the last one was that they didn't have a stake in it. Hmm. So I wasn't talking to anybody who was in it with me. Yeah. <laughs> so to talk to them, and it took a long time where I finally realized, okay, I think my problem is, because what I always worried about was to say, you know, if I just give up too soon, hmm. I have invested my whole life in ministry here. And ultimately, what several of them said to me was, I was kind of in a sunk cost fallacy. Mm -hmm. And that was keeping me in a situation where I wasn't going to be able to change the situation. And in order to actually combat the situation, I was going to have to do things that would be dangerous spiritually or Mm -hmm. emotionally or morally for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying for everybody, but for me, I didn't want to be the kind of person that I would become on the other side of that. And so that was how I really worked with it. But Mm -hmm. it took a long, long, long time. So you had a sort of brain trust or a board of advisors for helping you figure out when was it time to, you know, put on your life vest and get out of there. Is that right? Yeah. If you look back at the course of human history, right? Those are always the people just outside of the conflict. William Urey calls them the third side. These are the people Mm. who help us out of high conflict because they can see things we can't. 
One last question. How would you advise people to sort of preemptively prepare for conflict? I mean, because one of the things that uh, when I mention that question that I often get at the beginning, one of the parts of it that I always say is, I think you're assuming that 2024 is going to be a repeat of 2016 or a repeat mm. of 2020. And it can seem that way if you have the same players involved. Mm -hmm. But think about if you had asked in 2019, you know, at this time of year, what is the 2020 election going to look like? We would have had several things to say, but we had no idea there was about to be a global pandemic True. and that George Floyd would be murdered and there would be an insurrection at the cabin. All of those things you wouldn't have known the fall before. And so I say, we don't actually know what's waiting for us mm -hmm. around the corner. But if recent history is an indication, it won't be exactly what we're expecting. So how, how can somebody get ready if they don't really know what's, what's waiting for us in the future? Oh, I love this question. So I have good news. <laughs> okay. I rarely do. So when you look at communities that have gotten out of high conflict and into good conflict, they are constantly preparing, to your point. And what they're preparing for is for a shock. Something mm. is going to happen. We don't know what, to your point. And whenever there's a shock, because high conflict is a system. It's like a complicated system. But there are shocks to that system every six to nine months. <laughs> and yeah. you mentioned three of them just now, right? Within the first 24 hours of that shock is a huge opportunity because suddenly people are asking themselves if this conflict is worth the cost. People are asking themselves big existential questions and really starting to have doubts. So what does it look like to prepare for those shocks? If we take a smaller example, but a very violent example, in Chicago, what Curtis Toller does with Chicago Cred is they are constantly building relationships with people who are influential in the conflict. What does that mean? That means they are always inviting them to do the conflict differently, even if they say no a hundred mm. times. Then one of them, let's say, gets shot and is in the hospital and no one else comes to visit him. That's an opportunity. So there's Curtis and he issues the invitation at the hospital one more time. So that's an opening, right? But you can't start the moment after someone gets shot. You got to be building those relationships with people who are totally bewitched by high conflict. So we can all ask ourselves, whom do we know in that category? Who trusts us and who do we have a relationship with? Even if we disagree, mm -hmm. is there anyone? And what we know is that unfortunately, violence increases before and after an election like this. We actually do know a lot about high conflict and political violence. So we know that when leaders and even regular people publicly say that violence is unacceptable, people who care about them and know them take that to heart. So you're just trying to keep turning down the threat level and offer mm. the invitation out over and over and over, building those alliances. I keep telling this to members of Congress and their staff, this is what we need to be doing right now. Even if you're just starting with 
the people on the Hill who are not really the conflict entrepreneurs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are three things we can agree to? Three norms, three guardrails we can agree to. Get those figured out. And so then when that shock happens, you say, here we are. Who's with us? That's really good counsel. The book is called High Conflict by Amanda Ripley. I really advise you to get a copy of this, even if you're the kind of person who hates leadership books or whatever. This is not like that. So you, you really you really should read this. It will help you out a lot. Amanda Ripley, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host, Russell Moore. Producer, Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azure Phelps. Director of Operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering is provided by Dan Phelps. Our video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.